Well, welcome to another episode of Scotland's Choice and the Westminster Roundup. Well, we've got a packed and interesting show for you today, I think. Uh, very packed. Very, very packed and a great guest with us as well. I th- think it's important this week of all weeks to talk about the crisis in Sudan, what's been happening there and how that's been handled uh, by Westminster in terms of what they've been doing there. Brendan, you've had a 10-minute rule bill, I think you should tell us about. I have had a 10-minute rule bill on the extension of universal jurisdiction, which doesn't it's not as dry as it sounds, and it's actually quite important. So, yes, that, that was uh, that was good to do. Very pleased with that, how it went. Okay, well, we'll hear more about that in a minute or two. We, we also want to talk about opposition day debates. This is a, a weird mechanism that we get down here where the opposition, uh, Labour Party mainly, because the bulk of that, and then the SNP for the scraps at the bottom, try to gain control of the order paper to bring uh, things through the House of Commons. But it's a bit of a palaver, so we'll have a chat about that as well. And uh, you also had a visit from the uh, the First Minister. Yes, the First Minister came down as part of this uh, wider engagement strategy, which is, um, I must admit, from my vantage point in the Chief Whip's office, has been remarkable in how it's working. Very useful visit. But before we go on to that, we have a very special guest, and our guest is... Hello, I am Kirsty Blackman. I'm the MP for Aberdeen North. I've done various roles within the group um, over time, but I am currently the um, Cabinet Office spokesperson and I am also a Deputy Whip, so Brendan is my boss. <laughs> I like the sound of that. Well, well, welcome to your uh, meeting with your boss and me uh, for this Scotland's Choice podcast. The, it feels the, like some kind of interview. Yeah, you know. oh, these things always are. Yeah, <laughs> we'll let you know if you've got the job at the end. So, but um, obviously one of the big serious points, I think we should start with this, is that um, you know we've seen the crisis unfold in S- Sudan very rapidly over the past weekend and then into this week. And uh, you know we've seen other nations really kind of jump to it and get their their citizens out. Um, I personally was very frustrated. I was a spokesperson on this subject about the real kind of lethargy that we seem to see in terms of our own citizens from the uh, UK government. We, we saw, for example, France uplifting people of all nations, including UK citizens. It just wasn't kind of acceptable, was it, that, that initial response? Yeah, it was pretty grim, wasn't it? Uh, there was a lot of very, very worried families. I'm sure we all had constituents who were involved uh, I had one. You did, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I raised it on the floor of the house, and we were in constant contact with the family, and obviously they were worried, sick about what what was happening. And throughout it all, I mean, hopefully now we're in a position where we can say that things are happening and people are getting out. But this looming spectre of Afghanistan was hanging over it, and you thought, please, please, not again. Um, and there was, it was huge, huge well, worry. Not to dither and not to delay was one of the things that we should have le- had the, as a learning point from the Afghanistan situation to take action as quickly as possibly can could. And that lesson did, just didn't seem to have been learned. And it feels like we're paying the price for that as well, because we're you know in a situation where actually things are more dangerous mm-hmm. because of the length of time it's taken. We don't know how long people are going to be able to be extracted for, mm-hmm. for example. And it's really scary and actually because you know because of what's been going on the comms are very difficult so it's very difficult for people to get up-to-date information on what's happening and it just feels like Mm. the UK government has not been has not been acting fast enough but also has not been in communication enough 
because mm. even if you're if you're not doing like if you're stuck on a train and the train's not moving right mm. you feel better about it if at least you know why the train's not moving at least you're getting those updates mm -hmm. but people just didn't seem to be getting mm. in enough updates and that, even mps were finding it really difficult to get anything out of the government that they could mm -hmm. pass on to their constituents yeah. and, and i think it is important to uh, you know acknowledge that the armed forces uk armed forces who you know, undertook the actions, first of all, to evacuate the embassy, who, you know, were told was under serious threat. So you've got to take that seriously as well and get them out. And then eventually have started to work with the, uh, the those citizens that are left behind. They, they've done a brilliant job themselves, but it's actually that response that's been the really, you know, challenging thing. Yeah. Am I quoting your constituents right when they said they felt abandoned? Oh, they, were, they, they felt absolutely abandoned. And, you know, the, the, the communication you know, myself and, and members of my team were phoning the crisis hotline all day Saturday, all day Sunday, just trying to get information. And there was there was nothing coming out. And I remember I spoke to, to the family and they were saying that they were in, Car the, the family were in Khartoum and they were in their house. And there, there was a lull in the fighting. And they later found out that lull in the fighting was when the Italians planes went out, the French planes, mm. the German planes, the Irish, you know, everyone seemed to be able to move their people out during that lull in the fighting, except the UK. Mm. Um, and it was that coupled to that sort of lack of almost preparedness. And I think when we heard that both the ambassador and the deputy ambassador in Sudan were out of the country at the time, that's when you, you really began to worry that this had shades of Afghanistan written all over it mm -hmm. and thankfully I say now it looks as if the situation is beginning to uh, turn around but for a few days there it was really really worrying. Well, just before we leave Sudan, uh, obviously we, we had Prime Minister's questions today, um, we had Stephen Flynn asking a very pertinent question about the, uh, the, the this immigration bill that's going through. We've talked about many previous editions, this illegal immigration bill that's going through. Mm -hmm. The illegal, illegal immigration bill, I should say. He asked the Prime Minister directly, and it was a question the Prime Minister couldn't answer, because he said, mm -hmm. what happens to a Sudanese child if in the conflict that's currently engulfing Sudan, that child finds themselves in the United Kingdom? Does that child get arrested? And the Prime Minister could not answer and waffle because on it, some because nonsense. The answer, because the answer is yes, the answer is yes. Under, under the legislation. Absolutely the answer is yes, and it's going to get worse. I mean, this legislation that is going through is, you know, as Drew says, it's illegal. Mm -hmm. It is In the international and, law, yeah. yeah. Exactly, and it is, you know, deconstructing human rights that mm -hmm. we have mm -hmm. in place for a reason. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, like, I keep thinking, this is not being done in our name. You know, mm -hmm. absolutely, people that I talk to completely disagree with this bill that is going through because it is so horrific we've got a responsibility as a developed country to take care of people and look after the most vulnerable people they keep talking about safe and legal routes right or or they keep, uh, we don't have any safe and legal routes there are talk, yeah they yeah. talk about illegal migration well yeah. all of it's illegal <laughs> yeah, lots yeah. of it's illegal because yeah. there's no legal uh -huh. way to do it they haven't put anything in place they're like defining the illegality yeah. here yeah. and then they're demonizing people for um yeah. for being illegal nobody yeah. is illegal people just i think this is one of the worst things that mm -hmm. this Tory government has done mm -hmm. um, in the time that they've been in power since 2010. Yeah, we, um, we're we going to talk to uh, Kirsty about Opposition Day debates in a second or two, but before you get to those debates, there's a mechanism called the 10-minute rule bill that, that comes up, and you've had one of these. 
I did. I, I was fortunate enough to get a 10-minute rule bill on Tuesday. What was that title again? <laughs> the, 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 the title of the bill was the Universal Jurisdiction Extension Bill. Um, and for anybody who, like me, is sitting there going, what does that mean? <laughs> for that crime. So, for example, Daesh fighters in, involved in the Yazidi genocide, mm-hmm. you, know, you could be brought here and you, be, you can stand trial. I think the example that I used, which I think probably most pertinently, was that what we're seeing in Ukraine at the moment, there is ample evidence of genocide mm. going on in, in Ukraine. But as it stands, one of Putin's generals can come here quite easily mm. for shopping in Harrods or Knightsbridge, you know, a medical procedure, or to dine in one of London's finest restaurants, and we could not do anything mm. about it. And it's to close that loophole, but sadly it appears a loophole that the government don't particularly want closed. There's lots of countries that have done this already. There are you? lots, mm. yes, and there are. Yeah. Germany use it to, to enormous effect and they are one of the leaders of it. And actually what's happening now is countries are sending people to Germany for trial. And Germany was the first country in the world where a Daesh terrorist was convicted of the, the Yazidi genocide. And the Americans under Joe Biden introduced it in uh, in January of this year. Um, so yeah, so, that, so so it can the, be done. It seems well, it can be done yeah, very easily, yeah, yeah. and the, the, the direction of travel is that that's where countries are going. Uh, so what's as the, always, what's the government arguing about? Are they are they why are they not bringing this in? Have they got any actual reason for it? Not that I know of, other right. than the the what they they argue is that they have a thing. They call it universal jurisdiction, but in fact, it's extraterritorial jurisdiction, mm-hmm. which means that if you're a UK citizen or member of the UK Armed Forces. Uh, or a UK resident, and you go abroad and you do these things and you come back to the UK, they will try you here for crimes or the genocide, um, war crimes and crimes against humanity mm-hmm. here. But that's not universal jurisdiction. That's, as I say, extraterritorial jurisdiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they seem to think that is sufficient. And, and it's, it's simply not. The rest of the world is beginning to say it's actually not. It's another one of those moments where they're unwilling to take responsibility. Yeah. You know, yeah. we, we should, again have responsibility here we should be i mean surely nobody can argue um that the genocide is not a horrific crime mm-hmm. and that we mm-hmm. should all have mm-hmm. as an international community a responsibility to take action against yeah and the thing about yeah. universal jurisdictions it's not a new concept that actually it goes back Indeed. three four hundred years mm-hmm. from and when states got together uh to try and combat piracy in the high seas and that's where it that, that's where it originated, and, and and so we've developed it to to the state we're at now. But again, in so many ways, the UK are behind the curve. It, it's particularly poignant, poignant this week as we are laying wreaths in uh, commemoration of the uh, Armenian genocide 108 years ago. This is today's actually when we're recording this is is the day of the anniversary and Europe and and lessons. Have been learnt some places. Some of the some people call have called out. Some people are still not calling that all all these years later. Um, but I think that obligation to get people tried for these crimes is absolutely uh, vital. And uh, yeah, people should be supporting uh, that, that. And work. actually, the SNP have um, over my time in Parliament certainly been some of the main voices that are talking out mm. about learning lessons from genocide mm-hmm. and being one of the main voices yes. and and you know g- given the um small percentage of parliament that we occupy we are massively overrepresented in people mm-hmm. that are 
talking about this, that are calling yeah. it out, that are working on behalf of constituents and communities and, and, and other countries around the world that we really don't even have any local links yeah. with because it is so important. You know, it's the, the worst thing that can possibly happen. Yeah. And one of the mechanisms we might use at Parliament to try and raise issues is obviously an opposition day debate and we the promise we'd come on to talk about those. Uh, Kirsty, you've taken part in these before. The Labour Party is the main party of opposition here at Westminster. I get 17 of these. If we're lucky, the SNP get three of them. So it's like 20 uh, debates you might get. This is this week, a couple of Labour uh, Opposition Day debates. One on sewage. One um, on sewage, yeah. indeed, um, <laughs> which is a big issue in England. So there um, has been... Uh, a, there was a it is a big it's issue. It's, it, a, it's a horrific thing that's it, going on down It here. is. It is. Yeah. It, I, I don't want to... With their non-publicly, with their privately owned water companies as opposed to the publicly owned one we have in Scotland. I don't want to diminish the importance of it. It is yeah, very important. It is important. Um, and the other one that we had um, this week was on the cost of living. Mm -hmm. So uh, what happens with Opposition Day is that the Labour Party or us, if it's one of our Opposition Days, we get to choose the topic. And you can choose to have a whole day debate on mm -hmm. something or you can choose to have two half-day mm -hmm. um, debates on it. And we'll, we'll just make a call about what the, the best way forward for that is. But... You know, you're right, it's a very odd mechanism. The government sometimes uses them just to sort of fill in time if mm. they've currently, yeah. you know, not got any legislation going on, they'll just bug in a few opposition days. But the government decides when they are. Yeah, right? They get so, to choose these things. Yeah. Exactly. They get yeah. to choose the dates of them mm -hmm. and they don't get to choose the topics. But I mean, the reality is it's a bit like a kind of Westminster Hall debate, it's a bit like a backbench business debate in that you don't actually achieve anything very often from an opposition day. You raise it, you raise an issue. And it's really important we get to raise really important issues that we get to choose the topics of. But actually, the ability to change government policy or the ability to, you know, create something that actually happens as a result of it is that, you know, we're hamstrung in that because of the way the procedures of the House work, the way mm -hmm. the, the rules work around it. Because particularly for, for us as the third largest party in, in Westminster, there's some real frustrations about taking part in these things. Because, yes, you can have an SNP opposition day, and that sounds great, and you get to do the opening speech. But then it can be hours uh, before you get any other of your backbenchers in because they're going Tory Labour, Tory Labour, Tory Labour, the odd Lib Dem. The, you know, before you get to our next SNP, just interested in your experience, I know I've been last on the list in one of these opposition day debates and when you're you're actually fighting to get maybe two minutes of speaking time mm -hmm. uh, sometimes uh, as, as 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 i have experienced you just don't get called at all <laughs> i'm regularly last yeah. on a list or yeah. second last on a list yeah. you know maybe jim shannon's after me yeah, yeah i mean i, I th 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 there are strange things but particularly when there's something which is incredibly pertinent uh, to to scotland and to the snp and it's our debate, and you go an hour without an SNP speaker. Mm. And the speakers who do come in will have some wildly tangential <laughs> link to the topic of the debate, but they want to talk about, you know, the influx of motorhomes onto the fens in Norfolk. Like, wait a minute. <laughs> you, might even, you, you might even go an hour without a Scottish MP speaking. You know, uh -huh. not every, any Scottish constituency, yeah. you know. Yeah. It's just, it's bizarre. Some of these yeah, they, they can be. But I, I, maybe that's just a false memory, and you correct me if, I, if I'm wrong. But I remember, I seem to remember, when we first came down here, that the government were far more engaged with opposition day debates, and they would be quite set-piece events, would be the big hitters would all come out and they would go hammering tongs at each other and there would be a division and it would be quite a big piece. 
And then somewhere along the line, I don't. I think it may have been under Johnson's administration, the Tories just decided not to engage with them and just almost let the opposition howl into to the wind. I, I think um, there was a while where there was the occasional cool procedural thing was picked up that the opposition day could actually achieve something. You know, and I think um, after after that they were like, actually, these are not a good idea. Let's try and yeah. let's try and not engage with those and not give them any uh, any airtime. But you know, there's a tendency sometimes to not vote on them a bit. To be fair, there's a tendency for Labour to not vote on ours either. They've got abstain. Big... You you saying Labour would abstain on an issue that we brought? <laughs> Uh, almost every time. Yeah. Almost every almost, single almost every time. time. Yeah. Aye, exactly. Yeah. But what was very exciting was that uh, in the, the debate on Tuesday, I think it was, that Fergal Sharkey was sitting in the undergallery. Mm. He's Obviously, been a, the sewage issued a massive, he's been a huge campaigner. A tireless but, campaigner uh, on that. It was, it was quite exciting to see mm. Fergal Sharkey. It took me back to my youth. <laughs> Kirsty sitting here going, who's Fergal Sharkey? Was he a singer? Just, yeah. I am going to go and Google him after this. He's, he's just getting his teenage kicks. <laughs> ah, <laughs> oh, listen to the undertones. Uh, they're, yeah, they're pretty yeah. sensational. Indeed. And, and, well, it's one of the things that we don't have to worry about here is undertones because everything <laughs> we get in Westminster seems to be overtones <laughs> and it's all horrible stuff. Um, but talking about better things, we had uh, our First Minister come to uh, uh, speak with our group yesterday. We did, yeah. It was great to see him. Um, his his enthusiasm is quite striking. Uh, so how he's how he's engaging at every level of the party, and he said he would come down here as early as he could, and he, he certainly has. And mm. his engagement was, I thought, was fantastic at our group meeting last night. He took loads of questions. It shows you that he is he is determined that you know there is going to be this complete reset in the relationship between here. And Holyrood, which I think has probably been long overdue uh, and is extremely welcome. And I know that I'm speaking to my counterpart at uh, Holyrood more than I've done. I've spoken to ministers more than I've done. Well, you guys you guys know that um, I'm always sunny and optimistic and never cynical in this case. <laughs> but I was, um, you know, during the course of the campaign when he was talking about how much engagement there was going to be, I kind of thought maybe there's not going to be this much engagement. You know, maybe this is not actually going to follow through and we're not. But, but it has. It mm, absolutely yeah. has. Mm. In fact, the engagement that I feel like we've had has been much better than I even imagined it could possibly be. Absolutely. So yeah. um, I'm really glad that, um, you know, we're doing everything that we can and we're being led from the front in that and making sure that we are working mm-hmm. together as one team. I'm also really glad that this commitment to council groups um, is being yes. followed through with, you know, having been a councillor and I really enjoyed my time as a councillor, but we always felt like we were, well, or I always felt a bit like we were undervalued, you know, mm-hmm. um, because actually councillors are on the front line. Mm, absolutely, day to day job. You know, they are um, campaigning for us all of the time. They're making decisions on behalf of communities. It's a really, really important job and it felt like it was a bit undervalued. But now, you know, it really genuinely feels like the council group leads are being brought in and that we're all mm-hmm. one big team pulling mm-hmm. in the same direction. So mm-hmm. it's, it's one, of the, one of the very first things he did in that first speech that he gave, he talked about a well-being economy, mm-hmm. right? And I was so excited to hear somebody talking about a well-being economy um, because, you know, it's not just about GDP growth. Mm-hmm. GDP growth is important, but mm-hmm. not for its own sake. You want GDP growth to ensure that you've got um, better lives for people that live throughout Scotland. So what he's talking about is equality, opportunity and community. They're his priorities. He wants a fair, green and growing economy and a new deal for business as well. 
I mean, and he's already demonstrated that. Yeah. Who can argue mm -hmm. with that? You know, he's mm -hmm. he's coming out with policies, and one that will be particularly good for for you guys is the twenty five million pounds for affordable homes in rural areas. I mean, that's going to yeah. make a big difference. Yeah, this is this is where there's a, a real paucity of accommodation. We, you know, Brendan and I in our constituencies, largely rural constituencies, know that one of the big issues for businesses there is, uh, and indeed for the NHS and others is getting accommodation for staff working locally. I think for what, what many people don't understand or acknowledge is the unit cost of building in rural Scotland is vastly, vastly greater than building in a central belt or an urban area. Mm -hmm. um, and so getting materials out onto the islands or into rural communities, uh, they're getting workers out there, um, it's, it's eye-watering the difference. So this this will help. There's absolutely no doubt it will help. And I think what it does as well is it says to rural communities that you know we are listening. We do Indeed. understand your concerns. We will take action when 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 and where we can. Uh, yeah, it feels like a commitment to a direction of travel. You know, um, we've so. got a rural depopulation is a is a massive thing, and we need to support our rural communities. Indeed. So yeah. this is really important. And I think well. You talked about a rural depopulation there. It's my hobby horse. It has been since the minute I was elected. Uh, Argyll and Butte, uh, not, not exclusively, we are losing population. And it was brilliant to hear him talk about the highly protected marine areas, which I have written to him on. And, I'm, and that was a community-led initiative. So if communities want them, they can be provided, but they'll not be imposed in communities. And that is a massive relief. Yeah, it's really been listening, hasn't it? You know? Yeah. It, it, you know what? I think that that's yeah. that's the word, and I think that's what impresses me most is his willingness to listen. There's other um, things that are coming through. You know, things things that you know are, are fairly radical. I mean, we've always been ahead, for example, in terms of. Uh, climate change mitigation. We need to make sure not enough done. We need to always make sure we're doing more. Um, but you know, one of the things that's included in the the announcements we've had over the past few days is basically making sure that electric vehicles. We've got enough renewable energy in Scotland to power these. Uh, uh, electric vehicles are going to be much more accessible for people. So I think the ambition is it's it's to double the amount of charges, isn't it? For and, and given the geography that there is in Scotland, right, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. we need more of those mm -hmm. charging points because you yeah. need to be able to stop every so often and, and charge the, the vehicle. Um, and there has been there has been issues with that. So I'm, again, really glad to see that commitment to that. We have been leading the charge, but more ambitious climate change targets. Leading the charge, I like it. Uh, oh, dear. <laughs> I didn't know you that one. <laughs> <laughs> we've, we've got more ambitious climate change targets, mm -hmm. for example, and we need to follow mm -hmm. through on mm -hmm. that. Yeah. And it really seems like, you know, putting this in place where people cannot have cars, mm -hmm. right? You can't you can't just stop having a car um, because because you need cars, particularly in rural places, to exactly. travel yeah. around. Mm -hmm. So providing that infrastructure to ensure that mm -hmm. we can have the greenest possible transport, private transport for people, is massively important. So it's brilliant here um, yeah. making these commitments. Uh, you must be the same around your way as well. Like, you know, what's holding it back? For so many people, is this uh, range fear? Yes, range you know, anxiety. Range anxiety. Yes. That's what it is. You know, there aren't enough charging points, and this 
idea that you're going to get stuck at the top of a hill yeah. at midnight. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, if you're yeah. at the top of the hill, you're probably fine. You can just roll down. <laughs> okay. If you're at the bottom of a hill, it's a problem. <laughs> so, so you're, you're, okay, you're 600 yards further home, <laughs> bottom of the hill. But it is that range anxiety. Um, and I, know I, it's I think we'll get, uh, we'll get folk now complaining that you guys are not electric vehicle drivers and you know that it won't roll downhill. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> no, no, because you can't put it into neutral to go downhill. But anyway, because obviously I'm an EV driver myself, so I don't I don't have that range anxiety because What's I've like? worked out... Because you're an urban dweller. No, I've got to get right around my constituency. <laughs> One of the things I'd like to see us, particularly in you know cities and so forth as well, is adopt... Well, you know, sometimes you've got pinch ideas when you see them. And in, in London, a lot of the lampposts are actually converted uh-huh. into uh, chargers for on-street charging. And I think that would be a hope that somewhere in that mix, we're looking at that kind of provision uh, as well. Where we have, you know, we've got a lot of tenants and stuff in Aberdeen. Mm. And actually, um, you know, people are parking close to their close to their flat, close to their property. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, you need them to be in places like that that are better lit than, you know, in the back of some car park somewhere. Um, but, but yeah, increasing the number is only going to make that better. Uh, yeah, I don't think we have too many electric vehicle charging no. points. I think it's yeah. a great idea. It is a great idea, yeah. yeah. I dare say that somebody will be raising, you know, over the next few days the, uh, the situation where the UK secretly deported 100 uh, Nepali guards um, who were actually in Afghanistan and protecting uh, Kabul. And I know this kind of takes us back to where we started. But it, isn't it, uh, you know, we, we talked about the lessons of Afghanistan right at the start of this podcast, but isn't it bizarre that that's happening um, as well at the moment, whilst we still have other British Council workers, people who were, you know, working with the British Army, with the British uh, government stuck out there in Afghanistan. I don't think any of this kind of immigration stuff is going to go away. One of the big issues um, that uh, we've been we will be talking about next week is the uh, is is Brexit and uh, the fact that a lot of people are calling for an inquiry into Brexit. Exactly. And it just shows that, you know, these um, sunny uplands that we were promised, you know, it was all lies. We said it was lies. It was clearly lies. Mm. And we, you know, we are in a situation where our um, the GDP is not growing. We're in a position where actually we're performing worse than the G7. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the trade deals that have been signed or are being signed for a start. A, f- the, a fractional at best. Yeah, mm-hmm. and are awful for mm-hmm. our farmers, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Um, so they're, they're causing much more harm than mm-hmm. good. Mm-hmm. And businesses are really struggling with, you know, the amount of red tape that's in mm-hmm. place. But Northern Ireland have got this beautiful deal that's, um, I guess, you know. Yeah. The Windsor uh, framework that I, we talked about. Described as this brilliant yeah. deal that mm-hmm. Scotland is not allowed to have for some mm-hmm. reason, even though we similarly voted against mm-hmm. Brexit. But you, you, you do wonder if six, seven years ago, those people who were for, for whatever reason decided to vote for Brexit, if they had known seven years hence that the Bank of England would have said, well, you're just going to have to get used to being poorer. Did mm-hmm. they honestly, would they honestly this have is a quote. This, this is a quote from the... the the, the Bank of England. Yeah, the, the Bank of England said essentially that uh, people are going to have to get used to being poorer. So mm. all of this sort of sunny uplands, all of this opportunity, all this nonsense about being the, the Singapore of Europe, that might work if you're Jacob Rees-Mogg with his million stashed off of seas or whatever he's got it, or his hedge funds. But if you're an ordinary working person anywhere in the UK, well, the Bank of England, you've got to get used mm-hmm. to being poorer. Can I just tell you about an Ipsos poll that was done? So um, in 2008, the year of the banking and financial crisis, 12% of people in the UK believed that their children would be worse off than them. 
the number is now 41 percent wow. right mm -hmm. it's 12 percent at the height of the banking crisis mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and it's now massively increased to 41 percent yeah just but, but people staggering. people were voting on a basis of what they were being told by the vote leave people i remember doing a radio five live uh, session with uh, ian duncan smith at the time and i was saying look this is going to drive food prices up if we and he was going that's rubbish and uh you know that's not going to happen and it's you know that uh as brendan was just referring to the sunlit uplands argument was the the only one that came out there where we're going to get the best of all worlds when all of the experts everybody else was saying no that's not the way. all the economists were saying, apart from the ones that were you know that they were part of the vote leave campaign were all saying that this is going to happen and they've all been proven right. It's not just the increase in food prices, we saw like a 70% oh, increase. Yeah. You know, they're rationing tomatoes in the supermarket mm -hmm. at times mm -hmm. and they're not rationing tomatoes in Spain. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they're rationing tomatoes here because of Brexit. Mm -hmm. You cannot, you know, the government's got a tendency to say, oh, it's all because of Ukraine and COVID. And it's not, it's just not. Our economy is performing differently. Our food mm -hmm. prices are performing differently to the rest of Europe. And that is because of Brexit. What has been a benefit of Brexit? Because I cannot see one. I cannot see a single benefit of Brexit. Yeah. Uh, and and you, you, do, you don't want to be the I told you so guy, but by God, did we tell them this was going to be the outcome? And, and, and this is your uh, perennial re reminder that we're the only major party in Westminster who are committed to rejoining the EU, the mm -hmm. Lib Dems, the Labour Party, and of course the Tories. Uh, are all wedded to this Brexit, yeah. uh, you know, ideology. But Mr. Starmer is, or sorry, Sir Keir is absolutely determined mm. to try and persuade people that he's the guy that can stop the tide. The only way fix this is to become part of the European project again, and that's by so, being an independent country. Exactly. Amen to that. Yeah, absolutely need independence so that we can deliver this for the people's cause. Well, what a great place to uh, finish the podcast. It just remains then for me to say a huge thank you to Kirsty Blackman, MP. It's been a pleasure. It was I hope, good fun. Hopefully we'll it. do it again. Hi, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, you'll have to hold me back. Thank you very much. Uh, my thanks to Kirsty too, and thanks to you for listening to Scotland's Choice. If you want to hear more episodes of Scotland's Choice, then go to scotlandschoice.scot and you'll be able to get the full catalogue there. Hope you'll join us next time for our next episode of the Westminster Roundup.